This is the Book of Mormon, Digging Deeper. I'm your host, Mark Swint. first read the Book of Mormon as a teenage convert, one of the things that really struck me was the abundance of references to Christ made by prophets who lived well before his earthly ministry. Starting with Nephi in 600 BC and throughout the record, faith in and hope for a Redeemer, a Savior, was the central theme Nephi and his followers looked forward to. The reason this struck me so was because having been raised and well-steeped in a traditional Protestant upbringing, I had fallen into the trap of thinking about Jesus as a New Testament character. Only. I mean, sure, there were prophecies about the Lamb of God, but they seemed somewhat vague, or at least as taught to me in Sunday school and from the pulpit. The Old Testament was about God, Jehovah, who we thought of as God the only God. And sure, we believed in the Holy Trinity, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But when you combine all three of them into one being, it's kind of hard to think of them individually. And besides, the God of the Old Testament seemed rather angry all the time, full of vengeance and jealousy, not at all like the peace be still and forgive one another Jesus of the New Testament. My ministers never really taught or had an answer for why the change. You see, to a Protestant, or even a Catholic, and to be fair, I should include the Muslims as well, the God of the Old Testament and of the Koran is good business. It is from the Old Testament that all of the hellfire and damnation comes, and hellfire and damnation is good business for churches. It is what gets people in pews. It is what fills the collection plates. It is what lets churches grow. And it is what gives large organizations like the Catholics or the Muslims great power over the people. You see, especially during the Dark Ages and even centuries after that, the mass of people lived pretty miserable lives. Oh, for sure, they had some rewarding times, but mostly Life was an endless grind of up at sunrise and work until dark just to put a few morsels on the table to sustain life enough to keep going the next day. There was filth and disease. Plagues periodically came through and killed vast swaths of humanity. There were tyrants with invincible armies. Invincible, that is, to the peasants. Those same armies battled with each other, so death and war were almost constants in the lives of the common man. So, the notion of going to heaven, a place of peace and beauty and rest, was so tantalizing and so out of the normal human experience that people would do anything to make sure they got there. And here is where churches came in. They offered the pathway to get to heaven. But it turns out that the stairway to heaven was actually a toll road 
and the churches extracted a heavy toll. The road was strewn with obstacles of every kind. Sins, they called them, and there were plenty of them. Seems you could sin without even knowing it. And the churches offered the way to put away those sins and jump over those obstacles. But it cost plenty, and the individual was at the mercy of the church and the particular whims of the priest or imam. This gave them enormous power and opened the doorway to enormous abuses. And virtually all of this came from the Old Testament or the Quran. And by the way, I mention the Muslims and the Quran because... Unbeknownst to many Christians, Jesus figures quite prominently in the Koran, as does John the Baptist, and especially his father, Zechariah. Nevertheless, we are focused on the Old Testament as viewed by Christian churches yesterday and today. With the Old Testament so full of vengeance and wrath, the New Testament came along with Jesus of Nazareth and his form of religion. He was, to be sure, trained as a Jewish rabbi. He started his ministry at 30 years old, as prescribed in rabbinical law. He was a rabbi, but he was different. He preached a different kind of worship, one much more centered on the intent of the heart rather than the harsh obedience regardless of the intent behind it, that the Jewish law prescribed. Where the Jewish law basically said, I don't care why you do it, just do it, the message of Jesus seemed to be just the opposite. I don't care what you do, only why you do it. He said things like, a gift given in anger is not a gift. And he pointed out that the poor widow, who only had two mites to offer to the treasury, had given more than all those who, of their abundance, had given much. He was, in the eyes of the Jewish hierarchy, a rebel. He traveled throughout the land, preaching that the old law, the law of Moses, was being fulfilled. And he preached a new kind of theology, a theology full of love and forgiveness and forbearance and mercy. He even taught that where two or three were gathered in his name, there he would be also. Well, this just wouldn't do at all. Many of the people loved this message, but for the leadership, this was a serious threat to their power. They were already under the thumb of Rome and existed under a very tenuous arrangement with the Roman governor, wherein, as long as they could keep their people under control, Rome would basically leave them alone, except for the collection of taxes and conscripts for the Roman army. We see this clearly in the 11th chapter of John, where the Pharisees gather in council to discuss this radical rabbi known as Jesus and his growing following. We read in verses 47 and 48, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council, and said, What do we do? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. So the message of Jesus resonated with the people, and the Christian movement was begun. And this has given rise today to thousands of Christian churches throughout the world. They bring a hybrid message. The teachings of Jesus offer a hope against the almost hopeless-sounding words of the Old Testament. 
And yet it is this dichotomy between the Old and the New Testaments that has created the notion that Jesus is very nearly exclusively a New Testament phenomenon, as opposed to the one continuous being running throughout all of human experience from the beginning. So it is understandable that without a few bits of key knowledge, the Christian world primarily thinks of Jesus as someone who came upon the scene at the meridian of time to save the world from the harsh realities of the Old Testament. Into this mix, we throw the Book of Mormon. It is understandable that the introduction of the Book of Mormon would cause a stir in 1830. Here was a book that was just chock-a-block full of Jesus Christ way back in 600 B.C. and throughout the ensuing history. This was another good reason to criticize Joseph Smith and to proclaim that the book was a silly or a malicious fabrication. You see, it wasn't what the book said. It was what the people during his time had been taught. It was all about their preconceived notions of who Jesus Christ was and his place in the whole scheme of things. So today, let's see what the fuss is all about. Let's see what the Old Testament really says, and let's compare it with the Book of Mormon. There are a couple of ways to do this. I think I would like to build the case for Jesus in the Book of Mormon and then see if we can find anything comparable in the writings of the Old Testament to support it. In 1 Nephi chapter 10, verse 4, it says, Yea, even 600 years from the time that my father left Jerusalem, a prophet would the Lord God raise up among the Jews, even a Messiah, or in other words, a Savior of the world. Now, this is the first mention of the Savior, and the chapter continues on, even prophesying about John the Baptist as well. However, the first time we actually see the name Jesus or Jesus Christ comes just a little bit later, sometime between 559 B.C. and 5. 45 BC. We find Nephi's younger brother Jacob preaching in the new world. In verse 3 of 2 Nephi chapter 10, we read, Wherefore, as I said unto you, it must needs be expedient that Christ, for in the last night the angel spake unto me that this should be his name, should come among the Jews, among those who are the more wicked part of the world, and they shall crucify him. For thus it behooveth our God, and there is none other nation on earth that would crucify their God. Now this is pretty direct. There is no mistaking of whom Jacob is speaking. But this is further clarified just 16 verses later when Nephi again takes the pulpit and declares the following. For according to the words of the prophets, the Messiah cometh in 600 years from the time that my father left Jerusalem, and according to the words of the prophets, and also the word of the angel of God, his name shall be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. To me, as a teenager who was thinking about going into the ministry, this was earth-shaking. To find the name of Jesus Christ in a book contemporary with the Old Testament prophets was unthinkable and completely outside of my church experience to that point. 600 B.C. was, after all, just after Isaiah, 
and contemporary with Jeremiah in the Bible. Now, just a point as we go. To be clear, the word Christ or Jesus does not appear anywhere in the Old Testament, so don't expect to find it there. However, Jesus himself used other words to describe who he was, such as the Lord, Savior, Advocate, Lamb, Redeemer. And these are words we find aplenty in the Old Testament. Additionally, there are descriptions of the coming Messiah found in the Old Testament that clearly refer to the Savior, and these we can explore. However, we are not just looking for Old Testament references to a coming Lord. We are also looking to find participation by the Savior in the events of the Old Testament. It is the doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Jehovah of the Old Testament. If one can accept this premise, then suddenly it is apparent that Jesus has been involved from the very beginning, as indicated by the Book of Mormon. What I didn't understand as I was growing up in my Protestant church was just who Jehovah was. I thought he was God the Father, the Almighty, the one true God of the universe. In this I erred because even my own Bible told me that there was another, a God so sacred that his name could not be spoken except for once a year inside the temple. That name was Elohim. The word does not appear in the King James Bible as Elohim, but in fact, in the texts from which the Bible was translated, it is used over 2,700 times, starting with the very first verse. Genesis, first verse says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And yet in the original text it says, Elohim. The King James translators simply substituted the word God every time they saw the word Elohim. This was not done maliciously. It's just that they thought that God was the proper translation for that Hebrew word. But in Jewish texts, it is everywhere. In the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Bible, it appears over 2,500 times. Later, the translators encountered the word Yahweh, which they translated as Jehovah, and they were confused by the introduction of this other identity. So the Old Testament is filled with references to God and to Jehovah, the implication being that each title was used variously as the situation warranted. This confusion still exists today. Listen to this that I found online at www.bibletools.org. It's just a Christian website, has nothing to do with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It says, even in the Old Testament, there are two Jehovahs identified. David said, the Lord said to my Lord in Psalms 110.1, clearly showing that there are two in Elohim. But that is not the only place it appears. In Daniel 7, we find one like the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days. Other places as well clearly show two Jehovahs, or more correctly, Yahweh's. And then again, this from BibleTools.org. If one allows the Bible to interpret itself, and let me just say, I have no idea what that means. It clearly shows that Elohim is an institution constituting of more than one person. 
The Old Testament shows that Elohim consists of two divine beings. You see, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity brought about this confusion, and the world has had to deal with it ever since. Had the knowledge of the Godhead with its constituent members, Elohim the Father, Jehovah the Son and Messiah, and the Holy Ghost been understood and accepted, this confusion in the world would be gone and everything in the Bible would make so much more sense. Without belaboring this point for the sake of brevity, let's now look at Old Testament scriptures in this clearer light. Isaiah is a good place to start, but you could start at the very beginning and get a very clear picture of Christ's participation in everything from the creation of the world to the emancipation and wandering of the Israelites in the desert. We don't have that kind of time here today, but the next time you venture into the Old Testament, try this. Every time you read the word God, think Elohim. And every time you see the word Jehovah, think Jesus Christ. There will still be some confusing times because in most things, the Father and the Son acted in unison. Now, just a point about the Book of Mormon before we dig into Isaiah. Joseph Smith was also a translator, but with the added light and knowledge he gained from his visit with the Father and Christ in his first vision in the Sacred Grove, as he translated the words from the plates, he was naturally disposed to translate Yahweh or Jehovah as Christ. In the verse we cited a while back from 2 Nephi 10, we were given to understand that the angel actually said the words Jesus Christ, or the Nephite or Reformed Egyptian version of that title. Now, back to Isaiah. While all the Old Testament prophets looked forward to the coming of the Savior, Isaiah is probably the best and clearest source for our discussion today. Isaiah 7 is a good place to start. Verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Compare that with 1 Nephi 11. And I beheld the city of Nazareth, and in the city of Nazareth I beheld a virgin, and she was exceedingly fair and white. And an angel came down and stood before me, and he said unto me, Nephi, what beholdest thou? And I said unto him, a virgin most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. And he said unto me, Behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of the Son of God, after the manner of the flesh. In Isaiah 9, we read about the advent of the Savior's birth. It says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We could cite reference after reference and go on through the entire Old Testament, but time and space don't allow, and I don't want to bore you any further, so here's the point. The knowledge of the Savior was well known throughout the Old Testament, and even if the people did not fully grasp the concept, the prophets, all of them, strove endlessly to teach the children of Israel about their coming Savior and Messiah. Every element of the law of Moses was given to teach the people of their Savior and to get them to look forward to his coming. This they accomplished to some degree, but the people erred. 
They thought the Savior was going to be the one to liberate them from their earthly oppressors, the Romans. They thought he was going to be a great and mighty king whose armies could defeat any and all invaders. They completely missed the grander, more spiritual aspect of his mission to their loss and condemnation. How ironic is it that as I write this today, which happens to be Good Friday at the beginning of Passover, I am reminded that the Jews in Jerusalem used the law of Moses designed to teach them of their Savior instead to condemn their Savior. And they hurried to effect his crucifixion before sundown so as not to pollute the Passover observance with his death. The people of the Book of Mormon, on the other hand, were not privileged to be witnesses of the Savior's mortal ministry and perhaps for this reason were given a clearer picture of his advent and mission. We do know that through the teachings of the Book of Mormon prophets, they were given a much clearer vision of their future Messiah. One of the things most clear to the Nephites was the purpose of the Law of Moses and its application to their lives. We will do an episode just on the Law of Moses, but for now let me say this. As we read these verses, keep in mind what a strange discussion this would have been for a boy like Joseph Smith to write. Remember, as he translated these words, he did not yet have a fixed theology or a church from which to draw upon. Had he been making up this story, he would have had no reason whatsoever to write or even think about the following ideas. Consider these verses from 2 Nephi chapter 25. And notwithstanding we believe in Christ, we keep the law of Moses and look forward with steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be fulfilled. For for this end was the law given. Wherefore, the law hath become dead unto us, and we are made alive in Christ because of our faith. Yet we keep the law because of the commandments. It seems bold that they could have declared the law dead unto them, but they were saying that the purpose of the law was to point them to Christ, and since they now had a deep and abiding faith in Christ, the law could do no more for them. They knew, as did Alma, that the law of Moses could not save them. Consider these passages from Alma 25. Yea, they did keep the law of Moses, for it was expedient that they should keep the law of Moses as yet, for it was not all fulfilled. But notwithstanding the law of Moses, they did look forward to the coming of Christ, considering that the law of Moses was a type of his coming. Now, they did not suppose that salvation came by the law of Moses, but the law of Moses did serve to strengthen their faith in Christ. I had a discussion recently in a priesthood quorum meeting with a brother who made a comment I had never really heard or thought about before. I was telling him about this project I was doing to build this Digging Deeper podcast. As I was commenting on how magnificent the Book of Mormon was, he said to me, its greatness is in the fact that it fully establishes the primacy of Christ in the world. I didn't understand at first what he was trying to say, but as I pondered it for a while, it dawned on me that, because of the reasons we have talked about today, the Book of Mormon is the one book that testifies beyond doubt 
to the eternal nature and mission and calling of Christ. It, more clearly than the Bible ever could, teaches us that the whole purpose of the law of Moses was to teach us about Christ before he came. This is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Again in 3 Nephi, in his sermon to the assembled Nephites and Lamanites, he said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. While these verses are identical, the verses that follow show something remarkable. Matthew's next verse says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. And in third Nephi the Lord says, For verily I say unto you, one jot nor one tittle hath not passed away from the law, but in me it hath all been fulfilled. Notice the change in tenses from future tense to past tense. This is because when the Savior delivered his Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, the atonement had not yet occurred, and his resurrection had not yet been brought to pass. The law of Moses had not yet been fulfilled. On the other hand, when he spoke to the assembled throng in the Americas, it was after his atonement and crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. So in this instance, the law had been fulfilled. This is a subtlety that could have easily escaped Joseph Smith's attention if he had been hurriedly racing through a manuscript of his own creation. I am so grateful for the Book of Mormon and for the clarifying doctrine it provides on the true nature and calling of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am grateful that as a young teenager I was somehow lucky enough to recognize the value of this book and the testimony it bore to me of the prophetic calling of Joseph Smith. It took me years of study to come to the appreciation I have now for the Book of Mormon. I wanted to say the full understanding of the Book of Mormon, but I know that with more years of study ahead of me, I will yet glean more marvelous and valuable insights and lessons from its pages. And I will do my best to share those with you. I bear you my testimony that the Book of Mormon is true, and that if you read it with real intent, having faith in Christ, God will manifest the truthfulness of it to you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things. I leave you this testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm Mark Swint. Thank you for listening.